Welcome to the Logos of Experience and Truth podcast, where I unlock the mysteries of the beatific vision of God. This is the ancient yet ever-present path of discovering your inner freedom and unlimited potential to achieve your goals now. Check the episode description for a link to the podcast page at logosofexperienceandtruth.com where you can navigate this episode with time-stamped show notes. Let us begin. Welcome back as we dive deeper into the mysteries of the Logos of the Christ. What I want to do in this episode is to start filling in the gaps on the various topics I've touched upon that I feel are necessary to move forward. This will help answer some of the questions you may have regarding certain things I've spoken about, and from my point of view, just questions that I am naturally intoning just from hearing myself speak. I know I've bounced around a bit from this vision and time period to that, so I will outline the stages or phases in total so you can start forming a mental outline of the various spiritual phases I've identified and compartmentalized for the sake of understanding for my own sake so you know where we're at when I'm talking about this or that or when I'm bouncing around further. I've mentioned it briefly in the first podcast, so this seems a good place to return to the term or idea of beatific vision, as it is called in the Catholic tradition. There are several different definitions regarding this experience from several different saints. St. Thomas comes to mind, and I think St. Augustine was the other one that spent some time with this, and they each had a bit of a contrast to what it was and how it was experienced. I'll leave such thoughts to the theologians and instead go straight to the catechism, since each individual scholar, typically based on their expertise, will side with or favor one definition over another. And that's simply not my approach, since my approach is based on personal experience first, and then seeking to match it with what others have written about. And if my experience fits into one definition more than another, then I suppose it does. But then since I've had many experiences, one experience may fit one saint's definition at one time, and another experience may fit another saint's definition at another time. The Catechism does the same in sort of homogenizing all of the sayings and writings and concepts of truth into one. So again, there are variations to the experience, and thus variations to the understanding of the increasing degree and depth to the experience or experiences that are subtle to see and understand, but it does seem to be a known thing. St. John speaks of these increasing degrees of understanding the deeper you go, and then the common idea of God will give you what you can handle at the point you can handle it. Or in another way, when you are able to handle and or see more, then God will give and or show more. So in order to get this right, again, since I'm sure not everybody reads the Catechism, Catholics especially, which seems a strange phenomenon in the Church, I will simply read what it says regarding beatific vision so that you understand, as I understand, that this is the goal of the Christian life here, now. Not tomorrow, not in death, though that is why we believe in purgatory as Catholics, since it's an after place to work these things out, though the truer place to work these things out, the better place to place one's idea of purgatory, as many of the saints have actually attested to, or your own purging, is here and now, since here and now is where the kingdom of heaven is, here, now, all around us, though we cannot see it just as Christ says so in the Gospels, and thus the goal is to see it, the kingdom, 
and the king of the kingdom, God, now. So I'm going to read through the passages in the Catechism regarding beatific vision, Christian beatitude, and desiring to see God. So this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. They kind of break it down in there's pages as well as sections. So I'm going off of the numbered sections. So this is section 1028. Because of his transcendence, God cannot be seen as he is unless he himself opens up his mystery to man's immediate contemplation and gives him the capacity for it. The church calls this contemplation of God in his heavenly glory the beatific vision. How great will your glory and happiness be to be allowed to see God, to be honored with sharing the joy of salvation and eternal light with Christ your Lord and God, to delight in the joy of immortality in the kingdom of heaven with the righteous and God's friends. So this is a writing from St. Cyprian. The way the Catechism works, it always quotes the various saints that have spoken of the various things. So section 1029 in the glory of heaven, the blessed continue joyfully to fulfill God's will in relation to other men and to all creation. Already they reign with Christ, with him. They shall reign forever and ever from Revelations. Now the next section. This begins with section 1720. Now, this is about Christian beatitude, and beatitude and the beatific vision are essentially the same thing. So the New Testament uses several expressions to characterize the beatitude to which God calls man, the coming of the kingdom of God, the vision of God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, entering into the joy of the Lord, entering into God's rest. There we shall rest and see, we shall see and love, we shall love and praise. Behold what will be at the end without end, for what other end do we have if not to reach the kingdom which has no end? God put us in the world to know to love and to serve him, and so to come to paradise. Beatitude makes us partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. With beatitude, man enters into the glory of Christ and into the joy of the Trinitarian life. Such beatitude surpasses the understanding and powers of man. It comes from an entirely free gift of God, whence it is called supernatural, as is the grace that disposes man to enter into the divine joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is true, because of the greatness and inexpressible glory of God, that man shall not see me and live, for the Father cannot be grasped. But because of God's love and goodness towards us, and because he can do all things, he goes so far as to grant those who love him the privilege of seeing him. For what is impossible for men is possible for God. The beatitude we are promised confronts us with decisive moral choices. It invites us to purify our hearts of bad instincts and to seek the love of God above all else. It teaches us that true happiness is not found in riches or well-being, in human fame or power, or in any human achievement, however beneficial it may be, such as science, technology, and art, or indeed any creature, but in God alone, the source of every good and of all love. All bow down before wealth. Wealth is that to which the multitude of men pay an instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth, and by wealth they measure respectability. It is a homage resulting from a profound faith, that with wealth he may do all things. Wealth is one idol of the day, and notoriety is a second. Notoriety, or the making of a noise in the world it may be called newspaper fame, has come to be considered a great good in itself and a ground of veneration. 
The Decalogue, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Apostolic Catechesis describe for us the paths that lead to the Kingdom of Heaven. Sustained by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we tread them step by step by everyday acts. By the working of the Word of Christ, we slowly bear fruit in the Church to the glory of God. Now the next section. This is from the section of Life in Christ of I Want to See God, 2548. Desire for true happiness frees man from his immoderate attachment to the goods of this world so that he can find his fulfillment in the vision and beatitude of God. The promise of seeing God surpasses all beatitude. In Scripture, to see is to possess. Whoever sees God has obtained all the goods of which he can conceive. It remains for the holy people to struggle with grace from on high to obtain the good things God promises in order to possess and contemplate God. Christ's faithful mortify their cravings and, with the grace of God, prevail over the seductions of pleasure and power. On this way of perfection, the Spirit and the Bride call whoever hears them to perfect communion with God. There will true glory be, where no one will be praised by mistake or flattery. True honor will not be refused to the worthy, nor granted to the unworthy. Likewise, no one unworthy will pretend to be worthy, where only those who are worthy will be admitted. The true peace will reign, where no one will experience opposition either from self or others. God himself will be virtue's reward. He gives virtue and has promised to give himself as the best and greatest reward that could exist. I shall be their God, and they will be my people. This is also the meaning of the apostles' words, so that God may be all in all. God himself will be the goal of our desires. We shall contemplate him without end, love him without surfeit, praise him without weariness. This gift, this state, this act, like eternal life itself, will assuredly be common to all. That was from St. Augustine, it appears in the quote. The key concept that I want to get across is that there is no waiting. One does not have to wait until death to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The fact that Jesus shows us this through his life is again entirely for our own sake, for he existed in the world, fully man, and in the kingdom of heaven, fully divine, right? Simultaneously as the theology surrounding the second person of the Trinity teaches within the Nicene Creed. Now, let us understand eternity a bit in order to understand the kingdom of heaven all around us, though we do not see it. So, this is the best way that I've been able to contemplate this. Imagine you're looking at a timeline of history, a linear timeline that begins wherever you imagine it to be in chronologically. The Big Bang, or when you start to care about things of ancient past, like Pangaea breaking apart into the continents or something or my favorite ancient past myth of the sinking of Atlantis. Try to picture this linear timeline in your mind. A beginning point, right? A line going across a piece of paper, like above a chalkboard in a history classroom, if they still even use chalkboards, I don't even know, with an arrow that tries to denote the direction of time from left to right, right? A timeline. This is how our mind likes to see time, is accustomed to seeing time. We have these moments in our past, we're here right now. We have goals for tomorrow, though tomorrow technically doesn't exist yet, right? A timeline. Now, though God can see the world from this vantage point, again, for our sake, that's not how eternal time works, nor how God sees time or the world. 
If you take that linear left to right timeline, let's say you held a piece of paper with both hands stretched across as if you were holding an unrolled scroll or what you imagine if you were holding an unfolded map, right, with both hands, left to right. And this represents the timeline of history as we see it. Now, roll that up lengthwise into a paper telescope and then look through one end of it. And what do you see? All time within that timeline is being seen at the exact same time is what you would see. And that is how God sees time eternally. The eternal present moment where all potentialities exist, has existed, will exist. All past and present and future simultaneously, concurrently, at the exact same moment, both in time when looking at it for our sake and then not in time as we know it, since God sees all time outside of time by being able to see all of time that has occurred, along with all of time that can potentially occur. Now, it's not that God sees into the future as we would think of as prophecy. It's that all time is at the same time for God. And in a way, time or eternal time or eternity is actually static from God's or the kingdom of heaven's point of view, where for us, we feel it as a type of motion as we move forward in time. But for God, since there is no time, God dwells in eternally the present moment, which is the only time that truly exists. Thus, the kingdom of heaven, eternity, since where eternity and heaven are, there the throne of God dwells, is here, right now. This is why all the saints speak of how close God is to you, closer than you can imagine, the closest to you of anything, like air surrounding your every existence with every breath inhalation and exhalation. This is where the ideas of omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence occur, exist, here, now, and thus the beatific vision or beatitude occurs now, here, in the present moment if God deems it and if you're ready to experience the beatific vision that the Spirit will bring upon you. When the church declares one a saint, this is only an honor after the fact. That saint was a saint prior to the church saying so. That saint had already entered into the kingdom of heaven while still alive and on earth. For just as the Lord says in the gospels over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is here all around you, though you do not see it. So I love that line when Dante is in paradise and told that there are saints that none have known save God and that they exist high in the heavens of paradise, higher than people Dante would have expected to be higher in the heavens. As a quick side note, I always found it strange that when Dante's taught in school, typically only the inferno is read. seems strange to trudge through hell and then not enter purgatory or paradise, even if it is just in the literary, imaginative mind. Just a caveat, sorry. So that's the vision, how the church sees the vision as a whole. It shouldn't be seen as some lofty thing, some unattainable thing. And when I get into the desert of the soul, I'll talk about this as being one of the criticisms I have regarding the church. Or I guess the better way of wording it is that the extreme difficulty of reaching the state of existence as presented by the works of the saints and thus the church makes it seem like attaining to this is beyond the normal routine, that it's not something for everybody and as well, only for the saints. And I struggled with this idea mightily because I was married. 
My vocation was marriage. And though in the recent decades the church has spent a lot of time addressing sex and the body and such things as that, I still couldn't agree with what the hell was wrong with me desiring to lay with my wife simply to lay with my wife and not just to procreate children. And it was thoughts such as this that rendered my mind to continuously see itself as not worthy of the grace of God, even though I'd already had mystical experience, mind you, and that I couldn't reconcile the life of a saint with the life of a married person. And again, if I can word it properly at this point, the reliance on the church of seemingly only seeing the holiness of persons in the vocation of being a religious person far over and above the vocation of those that choose marriage, that it's primarily the writings of such persons that form the catechism of the church, and this always left me wanting, left me questioning. Now, maybe it's just my own stupidity in reading the works of, like, the Desert Fathers or the Rule of St. Benedict, since for some reason I read that long ago, but naturally one reads such things and wonders how to apply those to themselves. And though my wife and I practice NFP in our marriage, natural family planning, dutifully, strictly even, never once deviating from it until we decided to have our children, yet I still had to contend with the feelings of desire that dwelt within during those states of abstinence and had to deal with the feelings that there was something wrong with that desire since I was contrasting it to the saints living in caves in the desert battling the temptations of the devil like St. Anthony or imagining monks in their little cells in monasteries happily being abstinent for their cloistered and secluded lives. But that wasn't my life. That's not my life, and not the life of a married person. So how can those, which are the overwhelming majority of the members of the body of Christ in the church, like myself, attain to sainthood, when we don't live the life of the saints that are not part of the overwhelming majority of the members of the body of Christ, but are part of the religious vocation and orders? If there was an underlying question I've had throughout these experiences, at least once I entered into the church, it was this. And honestly, I think that's why I've had the experiences I've had, is specifically to answer this. So I'll say this now. What I saw as Holy Spirit, which is another of the experiences I'll paraphrase in a bit, I'm positive is not what the religious, vocational, individual living the life of a celibate probably sees or experiences. And when we get deeper into the understanding of why the Spirit shows you certain things versus showing you other things that others may have seen, perhaps you will understand better what I mean by this. So I mentioned various experiences, stages, and different things of that nature, so let's map that out in greater detail now. There are primary stages or phases of spiritual development, along with little mini-stages or so between a few of them, as I've seen and most importantly experienced within my own life. I've already said every mystic will sort of lay this out in their own way. I'm not saying any other mystic stages or sequences are wrong in any way. I'm simply going entirely off of my own 20-year experience in cataloging of everything. So I've already mentioned very quickly, kind of before the awakening, right? And I just call it the pre-awakening. That's just for my own sake, essentially. It's not a phase or a stage. It's just how I differentiate from when I had my first experience, from when I didn't have my first experience. So when I talk about the awakening experience, I'll mention those things that occurred during this phase, this pre-awakening, that were all precursors to the calling forth or awakening experience I was to have at age 19 in 2001, since there were many eye-opening experiences 
once I had the primary awakening experience that all pointed to something nearing that was going to occur. I just didn't fully see it at that time. It wasn't until after and I was meditating and contemplating it that I was able to see it now. Next, I've mentioned the awakening experience. This is, at least for me, a mystical experience of pain and suffering, most commonly called the near-death or the death experience. I obviously can't be sure if I was either near death or entered death during this moment of suffering since it's entirely from my own point of view. Worth noting in regards to this is that I believe this experience can be either positive or negative, meaning you either see angels or demons. To put it more bluntly, this experience was my descent into hell. If I gave the impression that the Lord had spared me witnessing damnation, or in particular, my own damnation, he did not. I mentioned this was a Saturnian image and experience that was seen based on time, right? Father time. Why? Because this experience is what's been described as seeing your life flash before your eyes. Though it doesn't just flash before one's eyes, at least not for me, but rather tears your mind apart. As an early disclaimer, the explanation of this experience and vision will not be for the faint of heart. Next, I've mentioned the expansion of the mind or the learning phase time period. The time period essentially after the awakening experience leading up to the desert of the soul, when all manner of lack of a better word, magical things were occurring around me, either spontaneously or through my own mental projections into the world. This is when I began journal writing, writing down my dreams, reading and studying pretty much everything that I could get my hands on at this point. The Bible, the Quran, the Upanishads, the Dhammapada. I can go on and on of everything that I read within a probably two to three year period at this point. So while I was still in this phase, there were many interesting experiences that would later define my mindset towards what I've described in the previous recordings as the renunciation of the spiritual gifts or powers in the search for the true, pure, dark faith. Now, the next phase is essentially all the desert of the soul, but there was something in particular that was gained during this expansion of the mind phase that I'll simply call the entering into the desert that leads to the next mystical experience. So this little section is just part of the expansion of the mind, essentially all those things that were pointing towards entering the desert of the soul, specifically the specific mindset, a specific attitude gained from the study of willy-nilly new age type gurus and teachers that all pointed to what I've mentioned as the attitude of self-divinity, of being self-divine. And it was here when this had reached its apex point in my mind that it led to the next actual mystical experience. I think I've already mentioned it. I call this the disillusion experience. If there are any devil worshipers or Satanists or those embedded in the darker, mystical, magical, sorcerer-based arts, there is nothing more terrifying than this experience that I had. There's been no chastisement that I've experienced from God that was more immediate, instant, straight to the point as what the Lord had me experience on this day. 
the total chastisement and feeling of being truly separated for God for an instant of eternal time, mere seconds to the mortal mind, yet an eternity of utter fear from knowing just how close God truly is and how quickly that closeness can be taken away, how quickly one can be tossed into hell, not in the next life, but now. This is what effectively demolished all ideas gained from the expansion of the mind, from misguided and or misinterpreted New Age teachings that centered around one's own self-divinity, again, which I mentioned I spent the entire next 12 years contemplating through the knowledge of the fruit of good and evil in my book, Lucifer Revealed. And it is this experience that tossed me into the next, and as I've stated, longest phase in the spiritual life of the desert of the soul. I've used the words of dryness, aridity, being rent into something usable by God, just as the Bible describes gold refined in the fire over and over again until the master is pleased with your state or condition to finally move forward. Prayers no longer answered. All the mental, magical, psychic projections fall flat. No more happy, fun, spiritual pizzazz as in the expansion of the mind time period. This is the transition from milk for babes into solid spiritual food as written in the book of Hebrews. That is what this phase is all about. This is the quest for faith, true faith. You can even say if you've read the grail myths of King Arthur and interpreted their mystical meanings, this is the quest for the Holy Grail, the long years out searching through the wilderness that the Knights of the Round Table undergo. I'm thinking of uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where they see the desolation of the land, temptations by the devils, failure after failure, entirely in the search for the Grail or the search for true faith. For those that regard church life or religious rituals and practices as somehow being low spirituality, for those that think themselves so high and mighty as to be above the need for church, the church, and most importantly, the Eucharist of Christ. It is during this, the desert of the soul, this is literally all one has spiritually, at least for me, that was all I had, all the consolation I had and that God was giving. It's from this time, I'm that guy that falls to his knees and holds up the line during the Eucharist when standing before the host. So utterly was my faith in the Eucharist brought to critical mass during this spiritual phase because there was nothing else besides this spiritually. I mentioned transmutation already and the luminous mysteries of the rosary. This is the greatest and most freely given of all the mysteries of the Christ to his church. The simple yet profound changing of one substance into another by faith alone. This is why it's hinted that the proud do not enter the kingdom of heaven. For what prideful person would kneel before a piece of wafer bread and a cup of wine, believing it to be the body and blood of the Lord of the universe by faith alone? So there are many spiritual positives in the desert, but from my experience, they revolved entirely around the church and my utter dependence on her during this time. Eventually, I exited this phase through what I will call the mustard seed of hope, how a few tiny little drops of water in the ocean became those tiny little ripples and continued to expand and grow as I worded it, hearing the master's call, or if you'd rather, the shepherd's call. I've often imagined myself 
wrote about it even, as I'm sure many have, as my being an unruly sheep, lost out in the wilderness, surrounded by hungry wolves, and there the soft voice in the wind, my master calling out to me, and the hope that returns, knowing that you can get out, that the Lord is calling once more. So this will consist of several different things that occurred all in rapid fire, but all of them centered around the Lenten sacrifice I had in 2017 that finally did what Lent is meant to do, changed me permanently instead of only temporarily. After this was the ascension to the temple of the Father already discussed, the time period between this and the next experience was only about two months. As I mentioned, in this time period, for me at least, it focused around the acceptance of this shadow self I'd created after having decimated it in the desert of the soul. To give church or Catholic terminology, this is reconciliation rather than annihilation or the purposeful forgetting of the past, which is what can happen at times through other spiritual teachings that exist. This led to, only about two months later, what I will call the vision of divine wisdom. It came completely unawares, in contrast to the ascension experience, which occurred through epiphany and learning and understanding, or the awakening experience that, as I've mentioned and will explain further, was drug-induced. This one came completely unawares. It did remind me greatly of that first awakening experience, though without the pain, since in this, a form of seeing eternity is granted. Omniscience of one's own mind, in a way, is seen. The previous experience seems to simply lead to the next, since each of these experiences beginning with the vision of divine wisdom occurs, or occurred, one after the other over the course of about four days. Now the best way to word this experience, or the experience of self-realization or enlightenment, is that it required understanding duality paradox, the left and the right, the up and the down, the inner and the outer, the microcosm and the macrocosm, the good and the evil, the light and the shadow. In it was clearly and fully seen the adoption of God into being a son of God, just as Christ promises throughout the Gospels that we will be like him. And as the church teaches, as I read, co-heirs eternal in the kingdom of heaven. Immediately after this self-realization or enlightenment, that night actually, since the self-realization experience sort of occurred over two separate days for me, the vision and what is seen pretty much not ending over that span. And then that night, there were just constant ideas surrounding the idea of spiritual rebirth, something having to do with the Holy Spirit, something occurring that night. I was even given a time <laughs> when it would happen. And I was essentially told I was going from death into life, that rebirth would occur through the Holy Spirit by fire, as the Baptist proclaims in the Gospels, that my heart would be brought back to life over and against the heart of stone that had existed just as Pharaoh in the Exodus story, and as God tells Ezekiel will occur to his people should they return, hearts of life instead of stone. A second baptism is the way my mind understood it. Water in the external, fire in the internal, holy fire, blessed fire, purging fire, transformative fire. 
and then it occurred that night. The next experience is the resurrection of the dead and the new life. All I can say to you is, again, if you remember the discussion on eternity, that the resurrection occurs now. It's not just some linear end-of-time thing, but something that occurs now. Since the world that ends, the world that is destroyed, the world that is renewed, isn't the external physical world, which is why the animals were spared in the flood, but the world inside of your mind. The world your mind has created, the world your little ego has been ruler over, and is now reformed in the light of Christ, in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not saying there isn't some type of, or that there won't be some type of resurrection at the end of physical time, but there is definitely a resurrection at the end of the world inside of your mind and my mind of the old man in order to make way for the renewed man, born again in Christ through the flames of the Holy Spirit, the life giver itself. This is the puzzling statement by Jesus to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John regarding spiritual rebirth. Since all it's done to me since this experience has made me wonder if perhaps some of the Bible texts weren't mixed up around in the current order that they're in, that the passion narrative should maybe be in the beginning of the Gospels. It's a question I'm still asking myself, actually, so don't take me fully on that yet, but... Having this experience definitely makes you wonder about the order of those gospel stories. When I tell you of the physical, external, meaning not just in the mind or the mental, the things that occur when you're at this point, when you're going through this and how I interpreted it, perhaps you'll understand more what I mean. Next, or immediately following the spiritual rebirth, is witnessing the apocalypse. All of this occurred on the same Sunday, May the 27th, 2018. There were signs, endless signs on this day, everything pointing towards the apocalypse having occurred in my mind, synchronized in a manner in which I can say that only God could have done or conceived of such a day and a witnessing of so many of the signs found in the book of Revelations. It was in the most beautiful of ways that my ideas surrounding not just Christianity as a whole, but the book of Revelations in particular, were all shattered and altered and enhanced and grown since the book of Revelations was the most hated work of the Bible to me. Like most, the idea of the world being annihilated by this loving Father God of Jesus, it didn't really make all that much sense. Until, if you remember in the previous two recordings that I've spoken of here, until I understood that the world spoken of was the world created in the ego mind, the world in the mind of each of us and thus the Lord destroyed it. The Holy Spirit was spiritual firing in my home, sign after sign, showing me and confirming me this inner destruction. After that, finally we reach the day of the Lord's rest. The Bible has many references to the day of the Lord. It's always a punishing thing, a destructive thing, a horrible thing. Not entirely sure why it's written thusly, though I have theories regarding it and the false prophets and some false stuff seeping their way into the text over the millennia. And again, don't take me fully on that. I haven't fully studied all of that yet. If I can hint in a way at what this was, it would be to say that this was like a visitation. Like when in each of the works where there's something strange occurring to a mortal, like the visitors to Abraham or the wrestling with the angel and such stories as that, 
If I use the recent St. Mother Teresa as an example, her words where she says that she saw the face of God on the poor, and it's why she worked so hard to care for them. I assume she had this experience, though I haven't read any of her writings to decipher clearly, but I saw and heard the Lord within one of my daughters, both really, but primarily one since she was old enough to speak and such. And she said and did things on this day, never before and never since, that spoke of something within her coming through, for lack of a better word, something, the Holy Spirit, an angel, the Father, the Son, whatever you want to call it, something was speaking through her, in her, with her, alongside her, since she said things in a way that a near four-year-old simply wouldn't. And I was in utter awe, is all I can say. And if the experience of self-realization or enlightenment showed the Son, the resurrection or spiritual rebirth showed the Holy Spirit, this moment, this experience, the day of the Lord's rest, shows the Father. And for those that know such things, gave the name as well. And thus this day culminated, fulfills, shows the mystery of the Trinity, the triune God, three in one, one in three, one alone. And if I can give the briefest of statements that I felt from this here and now, is that where man, the religious and spiritual man, seeks the experience of God, God, the eternal, immortal, unchanging, Lord of all, master and wielder of time and space, seeks the experience of man. Now, obviously, God doesn't seek anything, but that is the feeling one has on this day through this experience that God so utterly loves us. And again, if we can just to say so, so you understand how it feels to you, the observer and experiencer during this experience, that God desires to commune with us, be with us, be our God and us his people, just as the Bible states over and over again. And you simply more than read words in a text on this date. It comes to life. It comes to life in your heart, your mind, your soul, the first and the greatest commandment and that it is a two-way street. As great as your love of God and this commandment is, so too the experience in reverse is felt and experienced profoundly from God. I've had many experiences since the culmination of this, the experience of the Trinity, but none of what I've experienced since then has been mystical to the depth that these are mystical. They've all been more synchronous, greater understandings of various topics that in time we'll get to. So we'll end this, and I'll pick up next time continuing to examine more in depth some of the ideas and topics that were hinted at or spoken of in the previous episodes. Until then. Thank you for listening. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I have close to a thousand pictures at logosofexperienceandtruth.com under the vision section that show what is perceived by the human mind during a mystical experience. Every culture across the entirety of time has depicted the experience with the same foundational pattern, including science in modernity. Click the link in the episode description or search for logosofexperienceandtruth.com so you can see for yourself and confirm or refute my claims. Please share this podcast with those that are like-minded and click a like on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you.
again.